a number of weeks since I sat down with David Ellis, the managing director of the Quake Project, and Cliff Haig, the chair of the Coburn Association, to record this podcast. It felt quite inappropriate to publish the discussion of a topic which has been such a focus of social media interaction over the last while, but which now pales into insignificance in light of our current world situation. So now that we have a captive audience, that's you, we're releasing the episode of our podcast, which allows both of them to explain their views on the Quake project in West Princess Street Gardens. So get a cup of tea, sit down and have a listen. So our podcast today is a conversation with David Ellis, who's the Managing Director of the Ross Development Trust, and Cliff Haig, OBE, who's the Chair of the Coburn Association. So first of all, perhaps I'm going to give you um, a chance to explain yourselves, who you are and what you do. And I should say that we are here in the Gardener's Cottage in Princess Street Gardens, which has been renovated and it's just a beautiful space. Cliff, the little bit that I know of you is that you are the chair of the Coburn Association. You're a planning expert. I found out that you're an emeritus professor, Harriet Watt, um, but principally you're the chair of the Coburn Association, which is Edinburgh's Civic Trust. Give us a little flavour of who you are and what you do. Well, I moved to Edinburgh in 1971. I was um, born and brought up in Manchester. And uh, as you said, I'm a professional planner. I spent most of my career as an academic teaching in the School of what became School of Planning Housing, then School of Built Environment at Harriet Watt. And uh, since 2006, when I left the university, I've mainly operated as a freelance consultant, particularly working in European projects, some work for the United Nations and I'd been chair of Built Environment Forum Scotland and then 2006 I was asked if I'd be chair of the Coburn Association and I said yes. Is that a good job? Uh, well it's not a job, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a voluntary commitment. It's an honour to to, um, to have been asked to do that. I mean Coburn founded 1875 so it's even older than, older than I am. <coughs> and uh, it's got, I think, a pretty venerable history in this city. Mm. Um, it took its name from Lord Coburn, who famously, in 1849, wrote a letter to the Lord Provost on the best ways to ruin the beauty of Edinburgh. So he had a, a, a rather sharp wit. And um, so since then, we've campaigned on numerous issues. And the town, as it is at the moment, the city as it is at the moment, uh, owes quite a lot actually to interventions that the Coburn has taken over this very long period of time and through many generations to stick with the aim of protecting and, and enhancing the beauty of Edinburgh. So that's why the Coburn Association is called the Edinburgh Civic Trust. You're there as a kind of a, a protector, if you like, of the beauty of Edinburgh. Of course, particularly because we have two World Heritage sites in, in the capital here. Um, so, so then, David, uh, you came along. You're the managing director of the Ross Development Trust. The Ross Development Trust was set up uh, following the um, philanthropic gesture by Norman Springford um, of £5 million promised to um, a project, we'll, we'll call it, in the gardens. So the Ross Development Trust is a charity and the Quake project is the name given to the public-private partnership between the Ross Development Trust, which is the fundraiser, and the City Council. And of course the City Council has a variety of roles here because it has a role as the planning body and it also has a role as the owner of the gardens and a third role actually, um, perhaps the management of the gardens later. So David, did I get it right? Is that who you are? Absolutely, brilliant. Where we've been so far is there have been a variety of consultations. Even before the design competition was set up by the Ross Development Trust to get a concept design for what might be in the gardens, I believe that the Coburn Association was one of the bodies which would have been consulted then along with community councils and a variety of other people. So have you had your say? 
a bit like, have you had your tea? Have you had your say, Cliff? Or do you feel there's more to be said? Um, well, uh, we're very appreciative, first of all, that Norman Springfield put forward the £5 million. And as we know, David would probably say more. That helped uh, or delivered the, um, the improvement of the fountain, which had been allowed to fall into disuse. Similarly, um, over the last couple of years, is it? I can't just remember exactly. David might know better than me. Um, we've been very happy to be part of the stakeholder forum that the Ross Development Trust put together. Such a terrible word, stakeholder, isn't it? Somebody with an interest. <laughs> so, uh, and there are other commu there are community councils on that as well, and um, Disability Scotland as representative, and, and so on. So we, we've had these discussions, uh, and they're ongoing. Of course, we're not yet at the stage where we've got a planning application that's now fairly imminent. I think at that we'll we will respond as we do to a number of planning applications. Going back to you, David, why does why does the Quake project even exist? As you mentioned, the Quake project is a partnership uh, between ourselves at the Ross Development Trust and the City of Edinburgh Council. Um, it exists in a in a way to be able to present exactly what it is that we're trying to do here. As I say, it's, a, it's an important to, to stress that there is a partnership. The, the, the concept and the idea from the project was uh, sort of started with Norman Springford and his uh, ambition to effectively make the gardens uh, better than they are just now, and that was with a lead gift of uh, five million pounds. Uh, that um, started back in 2015, and since that day, we have been uh, working very closely with people, uh, important stakeholders around the city, to effectively take that initial ambition and vision and, uh, and take it forward. Um, originally, it started with just the idea of trying to replace the bandstand itself. And as discussions with stakeholders continued, there was a, a realisation that there was sort of little point in just replacing the bandstand in isolation and that the project should be looking at improvements to the entirety of West Pinter Street Gardens and a new sort of holistic vision for how that space uh, would look. And that formed the basis of a design brief. And as Cliff's already mentioned, there was elements in part of that as fountain that we've done. We're looking at other improvements, for example, accessibility, improving the toilets, the bandstand itself, um, improving the cafe space that's in the gardens just now, the, the three shelters that are uh, at the sort of east end of the gardens. And all that was sort of written up into a design brief that went out to an international competition. And we received a sort of a huge number of um, responses to that. Uh, effectively, then we have to sh shortlist that 125 teams down to seven, and uh, from that, the winning design was picked. And that's what we're sort of working on at the moment and taking towards our, our planning application, which will be submitted in the next couple of months. Can I can I just ask you a very bold <coughs> question, uh, Cliff? Um, well, two questions perhaps. Um, one: Do you think that the gardens need improving? And um, what do you like and dislike about the concept design? Yeah, we've, we've always said that you could improve the gardens. Um, I think we all recognise that there's been a, a long period of underinvestment, uh, most particularly in the bandstand, but also the, in, in the fountain, as I say. So, uh, and I said, we, you know, we welcome the, uh, the philanthropic gift that kicked this off and the, the work that was done on the fountain. Um, and we like other things in, in the project as well, as, as Dave is well aware. Um, you know, we we agree that the what's called the red blazes area in the west end, the the sort of children's play area bit. That's over um, near um, the St Cuthbert's Church. Yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. uh, that could be improved. We agree that the uh, the shelters could be improved. We've uh, you know widely supported um, quite a lot of these aspects. The the difficulties for us are really um, two or three concerns. Uh, and, and they're all interrelated. Um, one is the, the the scale of the, um, the the new performance area arena. I know David will say afterwards that uh, that this is for you know a lot of small performances. But my understanding is that it will more or less double the capacity of the. Um, he's shaking his head of the um, <laughs> of the existing Ross bandstand. Mm -hmm. Linked to that is the the intervention. Um, beneath the uh, Princess Street to create what's been called the Welcome Centre. So together we think these are pretty major interventions and they're intrinsically disruptive, they're intrinsically going to take quite a long time to construct when there will be a mess basically and they're high-end items that uh, will require 
a lot of money and a lot of risk if you don't raise that money or if you don't bring in the income that you anticipate. And our concern is that this then leads you into an overly commercialised solution when what we think is that a pragmatic set of relatively small-scale interventions could actually deliver a, an outcome that more or less everybody in the city would be supportive of. So do you think that the project should then have different phases if it was to go forward as the project as it is, or do you just think the whole thing should be smaller? I think basically we think the thing should be smaller. Okay. I think um, say a lot could be done on a much smaller budget with much less financial exposure, much less long-term need to raise new income. Uh, and basically meeting a, a, a lot of needs and essentially keeping it as a public garden that's open to all, just about all the year round and not closing it off at periods for um, events, for construction and for uh, private pay-only events. Okay, I'll give you the, the right to reply then, yeah. David, except I wanted to say one thing first, which was that um, I interviewed John Campbell just the other day, and he explained to me that the um, Welcome Centre, which is they're hoping to build up at um, really where the Scots Grey's Monument is, that's really a very near, good, yeah. very near there. Um, the back wall, essentially, would be where the railing of the garden is. It certainly wouldn't be able to encroach under Princess Street as such. So just to be absolutely clear what we're, what we're all talking yeah. about. Um, you're doubling the performance area. Um, it's going to take too much money. It's going to close off the gardens mm -hmm. for too long. And you're taking away this whole idea of a garden for the public. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, positive stuff you said there, Cliff. And um, you've obviously been telling us that for years and we're really happy to hear it. And it's almost positive for me that quite a lot of your concerns are things that I hope that you can be assured that are certainly not our intentions. The, the one I'll start by addressing is your comment about you want to keep these gardens as public gardens. I mean, that's absolutely paramount in everything that we're doing. Everything that we're trying to achieve here is to make these gardens more available and more accessible to the public. The whole project was about trying to make these the best public gardens they can be for the residents of Edinburgh. And we believe that a lot of the improvements that we're making are going to encourage more people that potentially haven't been in these gardens before or haven't used them to come in and spend a prolonged period of time in them. So if there's any concern that what we're trying to do here is to remove the availability of these gardens to the public, I want to 100% unequivocally assure you that that's absolutely not the case. Everything we're doing is aimed at making them more available to the public. Quite a few of your comments with regards to the size of concerts or the uh, closing down of the gardens for private ticketed events yeah i mean that but that, that's something that's not within our control we, we're here to uh, help advance design work and then raise the money to implement those uh, those designs to improve the gardens as a space in terms of the operation of how the events are run and the size of the concerts the number of them closing down the public the gardens to the public that's not a situation that the Ross Development Trust can control. That is all an operational side uh, of things and that's the City of Edinburgh Council. So if those are your concerns and they really need to be brought up with the with the council rather than with the Ross Development Trust. And I just want to take it back to when this project started, when Norman and I first sat down and looked at how we were going to go about this and what we were trying to provide as a replacement for the, uh, the, Ross, the Ross Bandstand. There was only two large events a year. One was the Festival of Fireworks and was, one was Hogman 8. So when this project first started, these other calendar of events that are causing all the controversy at the moment, they weren't even in the gardens. You're talking really about things like summer sessions. Summer sessions, yeah. Being and that's actually just, that's the council as owners of the gardens uh, yeah. letting yeah. the Ross Bandstand yeah. effectively to summer sessions for... Tom Jones, I think, coming this year. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, that, and that's, I mean, there's there's thousands of people that go to those events and really enjoy them, but that's a bigger conversation for whether the space is appropriate for that or not. Now, the, the bandstand that we're providing is focused on um, being a space for small community, mainly unamplified performances. And that's what it's always been about. If you want to put in a stage to facilitate major events like summer sessions, the stage would need to be about twice the height of what we're putting in just now. Our building is not set up to host those major events. There will still need to be extra infrastructure that's brought in in the same way that there is now, because for a festival-like stage that's required, it's a, it's a much, much bigger setup. Why, why, why would you not, <coughs> well, be devil's advocate here, sure. why would you not just think about building something that wouldn't then require 
what's call, always called the build. It took me mm. just to work out what that was. It's the process before a concert when literally roadies yeah. come in and build a new build up bit onto the stage so that it was because Mark Ronson was at Edinburgh's Hogney so that he can be there with his decks etc so so why would you not just build a bigger stage in the first place because this is not a, well, this is not designed it wasn't designed to be a space for those big concerts and as I say when the brief was written there was only two of them a year so we weren't going to provide the stage which is a, it's, a, it's a big impact on the gardens and for us the, the focus of this project is, is that this is a garden space first and foremost it's not an event space that happens to be in a garden it's a garden that has a community space that is, has been used for events for over a hundred years now we absolutely have to be able to facilitate those major performances because there is a lot of people who very much enjoy seeing them but it's not it's not a large-scale performance music space it just doesn't facilitate that one of the improvements that we're making with uh, regards to access and the infrastructure is that those events that currently take place, the major events, take quite a while to set up and take down. And that, I think, I mean, I'm put, maybe putting words in Cliff's mouth's, m- mouth is, is one of the problems. It's okay, the, the performance only happens for a few hours, but you've got to, a few days and days to set up and then take down. I know Hogmanay, for example, you're looking at about two to three weeks to set up, and then it's a week after for it to take down, and that's only for one evening of performances. And during that time, of course, the garden is effective, or part of the garden is effectively closed to yeah. the public. Can, can I take you guys back to something which has been kind of well discussed, I think, on so social media is a great medium and also a terrible medium all yep. at the same time. And a lot of this has been played out on Twitter. At the very outset, somewhere at the very outset, um, there was talk of the gardens or the the bandstand really being open for 15 days. For There was 15 days mentioned and then there were 15 events mentioned um, and now it seems to be 15 event days but then of course that doesn't really take uh, any recognition of the build or the takedown or whatever so um, where do you stand on this number 15 Cliff? Well again as David knows because we've had these conversations as we both know for quite a long time now um, what we've asked for all along is a, a number of days for which there will not be unfettered access to the gardens for the public so we we've heard talk of five events but an event can run for any number of days so mm. you know that that's a pretty meaningless figure we've now got this as you say this figure of 15 event days but uh, the reality as David's just said really is that um, the gardens are substantially impacted for a much longer period than that and so to suggest that um, you know it's just a matter for the council, which Davies said. I think, with respect, it is, is somewhat disingenuous because we both know that the council's intention, declared intention, is actually to run, you know, a significant number of major events in there. And what I don't get, and maybe David could clarify. Can I, can I just ask you, where did they say that? What? Where did they actually say that that was their intention? Did they put that in a document somewhere on culture and communities sure, or something? Yeah, culture and communities business plan. Oh. I think. 15, 15, 15 days. That's, where, that's yeah. where the 15 days comes mm. from, I think. Yeah. Previously, last year, they were talking about five five events. But as I say, the problem is that what is an event is an elastic concept. But, I mean, the, the question I, I've got for David, which you know, really came out of what, what he just said, which I hadn't fully grasped before, is if you know if your design is simply for the these small events, um, but you know it's going to be used for bigger events, then that seems to me really contradictory. Uh, I mean, it's perhaps repeating your question, but um, if what we're having is just small community events but it needs to accommodate much larger events for a substantial number of days of the year. Um, why, why not go for that? You know, what, why, it, it seems like it's going to be a temporary arrangement each time there's a big event, am I right? There will be a temporary stage brought in for yeah. these major events, yeah, because as I say there's only 15, of them, 15 days of them per year. Um, the that, that, that's planned per planned, year, but yeah. then of course that could change. Yeah. I mean, we could have 300 I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean ultimately that comes down to a council decision and um, not under our control but as I say 
the purpose of the space is to provide a community performance space that can be used all throughout the year. Now, um, there will be 15 major events days, um, as the council have stated just now. Um, but that could mean 45 days. No, well, it, could, it could be 45 days during which that area is out of bounds to me walking through the gardens. Yeah, again, that comes down to a, an operational mm -hmm. management issue, yeah. which yeah. is not something that we're in control of. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the concerns I know Cliff has had um, is that with the provision of a new event space, we'd make it easier. And I think you can understand why you feel that way, that there'd be more events put on there of a larger mm -hmm. scale. Now what we're trying to say is actually it doesn't make it any easier really to put on those events with what we're trying to do because it's not aimed at providing a space for that. The reason we didn't do what you were suggesting and provide a space that could facilitate that is because it would be an enormous impact on the gardens and for the days, the 300 odd days a year when they're not being used for those events it would just look completely out of place and it wouldn't feel like a garden at all. Um, and I think we're getting sort of caught in the middle and being the, the sort of uh, sounding board for all these negative comments about the operational side of things. Now, I take you back to the comment I made when we first came up with the brief here. There was a Hogmanay performance and there was a festival fireworks. Now, almost nobody has any issues with festival fireworks. They've been in the calendar for years. Similar, Hog similar to Hogmanay, it's a big disruption, but actually it's a once in a year celebration. The, the difficulty we have now is that we're sort of getting involved in wider conversations about other things that are happening in the city. Uh, sort of bigger issues and just within Princess Street Gardens and ultimately go back to the purpose of this project it's about providing a space that can be used by the community in the same way that the bandstand has been used by the community for over a hundred years uh, and yes there are these few number of big events but they are an important part of the cultural calendar as well now I'm not saying that we are for or against them but there needs to be an appreciation that thousands of people do enjoy them and I can understand why um, people want to watch events in that space because it's one of the most unique backdrops in, in the world. But I think it's about balance and one of the positives I would say about our work, although we're not able to provide a stage which facilitates those performances itself, we are able to provide a lot better infrastructure, back of house facilities and access which means that the setup and takedown time for those events should be greatly reduced. So what we're saying to you is we're, we're making all these improvements to the gardens, more green space, better planting, more trees, safer access, new toilets, uh, upgraded shelters, new community performance space. And we're also reducing the time or the disruption that these major events currently cause. But those major events, you said, will have enormous impact. They do have an impact on the gardens, yeah, but they will be reduced. The thing about it, Cliff, is if this project was to, for example, disappear tomorrow, those events are still going to happen you're still going to have the same concerns about how the space is used, but you don't get the benefit of all the things that we're trying to improve. Now, our hands are tied in a sense because we don't have the management control. We can't put an operational plan in place. We can't show you how the space is going to be used because that's all council issues. And that's what I think that um, we're working with the council to get some clarity over how that space is going to be run. And I think that's what we've said to the stakeholders we're going to try and provide. And the council have committed to have that come to committee within the next couple of months. Uh, and I hope that that gives you some more certainty. But certainly from our perspective, uh, comments around how the space is used and major events and your concerns around that, I fully understand them. They're totally justified and it's great that you're sort of coming forward with that, uh, those concerns. But ultimately it's not the Ross Development Trust's responsibility to be able to answer them. We don't have the power to be able to do that. Um, and as I say, the, the, one of the concerns I have is that if the um, if negativity about the project uh, raises or there's concerns brought up about it, actually the people that lose out are the public. It's the residents of Edinburgh that are going to lose out because you lose, as I say, the better access, the more green space, the planting, the better facilities, the, the space that actually is going to be drastically improved for the time when there's not events happening. And actually what you'd be left with was still exactly the same issues that you have just now. Concerts aren't going to go away if this project was to, for example, just disappear. So I think it's about working together to try and get those questions answered to make sure there's a sort of harmony and a balance of how the space is operated, but actually allowing all these changes to take place. You, you made a few comments about things costing too much or uh, there's a risk financially. Well, yeah, I mean, we wanted this to become a fantastic place, the best it could possibly be. And I won't apologise for setting the bar high and trying to raise an awful lot of money, but there's no risk because if the money's not raised, the work doesn't happen. So it's either we, we do it, we raise all the money and we get all these improvements or it doesn't. And Phyllis was absolutely right when you mentioned the work being phased. We will be looking at phasing it uh, in different ways to minimise the disruption as much as possible and to keep the gardens open. But you're right, there will be significant construction required. But what we're providing here is not a solution for two or three years. It's something that's going to last for generations. I mean, the sort of fundamental uh, look of the park here hasn't changed for 
generations. David Ellis, how can you call it a park? You've got your office here in the gardens. <laughs> it's Princess Street Gardens to anybody from Edinburgh. Um, so am I, am I right in thinking, would I be right in thinking, that actually um, some you, you guys are on the same side of the picket fence? I think for a lot of things that we are, yeah, but I think that's not put across properly, I say. Mm -hmm. We, of course, we've got concerns about how space will be operated, but maybe for slightly different reasons. We want to ensure there's a sustainable plan in place to make sure that if we're raising money or asking individuals to provide large sums of money that the space is not left to rot. There's a need to make sure the facilities are maintained. So the management yeah. structure has to be... Um, again, I spoke to John Campbell about this and he has a, uh, an image of a, a management structure which uh, might be a Scottish Charitable Trust with people like the Coburn on it, with people well, like the Council on it, but the, the, none of that is yet set in stone. I, I think what he was referring to is that we did actually try that approach a couple of years ago because we recognised there was a sort of missing piece in the puzzle that was going to affect us as a charity because people like Cliff and the Coburn were asking well actually we support a lot of what you're doing but it's, we only support it if it's going to be run properly I fully understand that um, and we looked at a proposal for a new management option which was through the form of a charitable uh, arm's length organisation uh, which would work as you say there would be representation from the council from the community and from our board and it would effectively run the gardens in isolation to make sure that they were run in the best way possible for the gardens themselves but that's that's an alio alio yes ali alio i was thinking that's skipping <laughs> some um but cliff you didn't like that idea i don't think no we, we we were still unclear about what the aims were and i think the the drafted aims you know included a pretty open-ended commitment towards a range of performances and our concern was has been throughout that you know this is a garden we think that primarily it is a garden public garden that's what should be the priority and um, I think where the the issue about the performances and the more circumscribed role of the the quake project comes in Davis you know differentiated between delivering mm -hmm. the, the the physical change on the ground and what happens afterwards in terms of management but it seems to me that comes together with the, the the marketing that's going on in respect of the project. Mm. So when you start talking about Princess Street Gardens as an unrivaled marketing opportunity, mm. or worse to that effect, I think that um, causes great concern. This is in the uh, the documents to potential donors, the, the brochures Correct, which yes. the Quake have produced, and, and think, they've yeah. said things like you may have a naming right for a pathway or yeah. whatever or um, yeah. or you can have your you could have your dinner parties here in the lovely Absolutely. gardener's yeah. cottage yeah. i think one um, of the phrases was an unparalleled opportunity for experiential marketing yeah. maybe, maybe david could explain that as a salesman himself we're talking means. about we're talking perhaps about people i mean the the, the gap is somewhere between 15 and 20 million yeah. not quite sure what exactly but the Norman Springford gave five, the council's going to match fund another five. The price has always been, that I've heard anyway, it's always been £25 million. Yep. Um, it may have gone up a little bit. So you have a gap. You have to raise that money from either people who are very rich or corporations who are very rich, and they will require some form of return, unless, of course, they're anonymous donors. We've all seen the anonymous donors in the galleries, etc. Yep, so um, what's wrong with, with offering them a dinner party in the garden, gardener's cottage or whatever. I think from our point of view, you've hit the nail on the head. There's a lot of money to raise and that needs to come from somewhere. It doesn't can't come from the public purse because there's a shortage there of the, of the money. And certainly the way that we look at this fundraising uh, approach and is really the same with any capital campaign or fundraising approach, whether it's for galleries or schools or hospitals or, or what else or other public spaces, other places in the world, that um, offering things like naming rights is certainly not new. It's not new to Edinburgh and it's not even new to the gardens. We've got two significant uh, elements in the gardens that have had someone's name on them for over 100, uh, 100 Tell years. Tell us what they are. Well, you've got the Ross uh, bandstand itself, which was donated to the city by um, William Henry Ross, the chairman of the distillers back in 1876, I think. Uh, so that's been in there for now almost 150 years. And the Ross Fountain, um, which has been in um, since, I think... 1872 
uh, and that's a different Ross. So there's two Rosses who have had their names on those buildings or the structures for over a hundred, uh, significantly over a hundred years. You've also got a significant number of benches in the gardens that have all been given for a, for a price that's display people's names on them. But they're uh, for the public to sit on. Absolutely, but everything that would be being provided would be for the benefit of the public. Now, certainly from our point of view, if um, a large corporation or an individual is going to give a significant amount of money to benefit the public and for that they would like their name to be on the space then that we certainly don't feel there's anything wrong with that nor did the council the one thing i would say and this is where there's been potentially a little bit of confusion as to how that would be accepted or agreed or discussed our responsibility would to be going out effectively to sell the project as cliff says and to do that yes we need to use some language that probably doesn't sound the best in terms of how we're selling it but if we're trying to raise millions of pounds from people we need to be um, trying to sell the benefit of the project and, the, and the sell the benefit of the site and that that's what it is it's a marketing tool to allow us to generate significant funding um, but nothing would be agreed no nothing would be signed um, by us we would be taking opportunities for companies or for individuals who want to give money we'd take that to the council that would go through council committee and a decision then would be made whether or not that was appropriate there would be no ability for us as the Rust Development Trust to sell off parts of the gardens um, without a, a council acceptance I mean the selling office which is how it's been portrayed in the press is simply not true we'd be raising money for improvements which would benefit the residents but would come from funding from private sources uh, like philanthropists or companies as is what happened throughout the entirety of Edinburgh for generations yeah, I so, think so I guess I guess it I guess it's back to you Cliff and then yeah. do you do you trust the council with that kind of decision making well I'm pleased that Davy's got so much confidence in them um, I think that we have to draw a distinction between philanthropy and marketing and if you're telling people that um, this is an unparalleled marketing opportunity you I mean unless you're misleading them you've got to say that's what it is and you don't think they would just understand that in years gone by you didn't actually even have to approach philanthropists I think I mean, somebody like the Usher family they wanted to put their name on they wanted to give the money to the city for the Usher Hall and I, I, I don't imagine for a minute that anybody had to go and ask them very much mm. I think they would probably be putting their hand forward well, it was before even my time that one no I mean I, I think I think <laughs> my other concern in this is that we've got this ambitious scheme mm. and I take the you know take the good faith in which it was entered into but if you're then chasing donations Inherently, in that situation, it's like in any deal-making, you're in the weaker position. And you can say that it's all going to go to the council and the council will apply the strictest standards and so on. Um, we just don't know, is the reality. We just don't know what the council will decide. What, it could be a, a new council, two years' time, whatever. Um, but what we do know is you're using this sort of language which portrays the gardens as having a very different purpose. It portrays the gardens as essentially being up for grabs for whoever is prepared to put the money in, admittedly towards an improvement. We can debate just what type of improvement, but I think it's inconceivable that big corporate donors are not going to look for what's the phrase you know bang for their bucks I mean they're, they're going to look to get some profile there yeah. but do you think that at the same time I hear everything you're saying but do you think that at the same time that let's say Aberdeen Standard Life um, some other bank would understand the print, the very basic principle of the um, of the whole Quake project is to improve the gardens for the public. Do you think they would That's, understand that at the same time? I think it'd be a negotiation, and um, it's an experiential marketing opportunity. I think I think with the, the greatest respect, I do I can fully understand um, your concerns on that and. Uh, we're very aware of the sensitivities around this project which have only been heightened by other things that have been happening in the city over the last few years but I think Phyllis hit the nail on the head there when we're going out and talking about the project this is about 
be able to improve one of Edinburgh's most fantastic public spaces, probably the most important public green space in Edinburgh, if not the entirety of Scotland, and one of the most amazing locations. It's all about a project that needs to be funded by those that have the ability to do so, that have a base or a love for Edinburgh, to benefit those that live in Edinburgh. We're not going out and selling this to corporates to say you're going to have um, been able to close down the gardens or run private stuff. It's definitely not what this is about. People that we're talking to the project about, they want to support this project because of the fact that it's benefiting the residents. This is not about restricting access or stopping people coming in or selling off parts of it. Yes, there's going to be discussions about whether if we're putting in new buildings, they can have somebody's name on it. And it does provide a fantastic marketing opportunity because if this all, fast forward a few years and this all goes well and everything happens the way that we're hoping it does, if somebody's name is on that building, it's going to be one of the most talked about buildings in Western Europe. And that's, that's what we're trying to get across here. But the thing about it is, is it, a, is it an okay um, sort of sacrifice to have a name on a building if it's providing so much joy and benefit to the local community? It's for us, and I think for other capital campaigns that have been running in any city in the world for generations, it's, it's a fantastic, it's a win-win. The, the, the companies or the individuals that are providing the significant funding get the recognition through their naming rights but that is absolutely no way to the detriment of anybody that wants to use that space. There's no trade-off here. It's either you fully bought into what we're trying to do in this project as a donor, and you, do, you are allowed some sort of benefit for that to recognise uh, the contribution, but it's absolutely not to prevent, then prevent access to the public, to shut things off, to, to, keep, to, to make the gardens private. We wouldn't be approaching anybody that that's what they were after. So there'd be no corporate only private events? Absolutely not and I think this is what you know because the council's going to run it. Are they going to run it? You don't know that either. I don't think with the greatest of respect that you do know what the structure of management well, would the be. Well de the default assumption at the moment yes. 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 I mean, that's yes. the conversation with yeah. John Campbell is that the council yeah. runs it. David said that. Yeah. But I think what it does change though, it, ch it changes what is public good land. So it's our land, it's our gardens hmm. into for the sake of argument the virgin money gardens but, but the name of the gardens isn't changing it's just the new improvements that would be looking at no, no matter what people offered to put in absolutely not because i think we obviously from the point of view of our project we have our vision and our plan of what what it is that we were trying to do here and from day one that has been about trying to provide the best public garden for the residents of edinburgh but there has been an acknowledgement from day one that to be able to achieve that, we need to rely on those that have been successful, whether that's corporates in the city or philanthropists, to help make that a reality. Now, for some of them, they do not want anyone to know who they are. And we had hundreds of thousands of pounds donated from private individuals so for the fountain that helped with Norman's contribution, and they didn't want anybody to know who they were. But some people might ask if they're giving millions of pounds to the project. I would like, as a as a thank you, or to make it people aware of my contribution, my name to be on the bandstand, for example. Now, if that's an appropriate thing and, the, and it provides the facilities, then then that's, that's something that ourselves and the council are, are happy with, and it's the same as any capital campaign. One of the comments that was in the fundraising brochures was invites to VIP events. Now, that's something that's been sort of, I think, slightly misconstrued. We're not talking about private events within the gardens. These are private fundraising events that we're holding before work even starts. Actually, um, we, we, if the gardens are open, we'll have raised the money and therefore there's no need to hold fundraising events within the gardens. All these events that we're talking about, private events and VIP events, they all happen before work even starts. And we've been doing them for years. So that's when you're trying to, you're twisting people's arms. That's it, yes. Basically. We don't want to invite them Holding their wallets hostage. <laughs> <laughs> So I hear everything you're saying and we, I hope that we could perhaps agree on what we agree, which is that the Ross Bandstand in its, in its current form is uh, not in the best condition. The shelters are not in the best condition. Even the gardens to an extent are not really in the best condition. If we were to go back a little here and leave the leave the fundraising to you David I don't really envy you your job <laughs> if we were to go back we have a concept design which has a welcome center which has its back wall as the um, railing on Princess Street it would flow out from there and go down under the ground mm -hmm. and it would have a grassed roof as far as I'm aware and then you would also have that would be that's the welcome center and one of the stories of that is a community space. 
You then come down to where the Ross Bandstand is, which at the moment is accessed over a rail bridge, which again is not in the best condition. And the Ross Bandstand would be a new building. And the area to the north of the um, the area to the north of the Ross Bandstand is a sloping area. It's it's not tarmac. It's some sort of concrete, um, with a tarmac area behind. It's on a very steep slope, and you also have the two very steep accesses from the Scots Grays Monument into the gardens. So, going back to you, Cliff, you're the planner here. Um, the accessibility alone would determine that you really have to do something about the gardens um, to improve them. So give us the good and the bad of the plans that are proposed at the moment. Well, um, the good is that it does put the disabled access issue on the table, which has been left off for too long. It would also, uh, the good would be that it, it would um, hopefully create a performance area that would then be used. I mean, one thing I still don't quite understand is why um, we cannot have these small-scale community events in the existing bandstand. With, I, I grant that you could do some maintenance and improvement of it, and that's one of the problems we've got, that it's, it's easier to focus fundraising on capital, event, uh, capital spend rather than on revenue spend. But um, so you, you, could, you could certainly improve that, that rather ugly fenced off um, seating area in front of the, 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 uh, the current bandstand as well. Uh, and I say all, all these seem to me to be sort of modest interventions that could be made. Our concern with the Welcome Centre is that it, it is quite a significant intervention that, that changes the profile there and that uh, we're not really convinced that that's the only way to get disabled access into the garden. We'd like to see a, a full study of the options from the west through St Cuthbert's, that sort of entrance uh, in, in the west, and behind the cottage here, whether you could get a lift access down what's this quite a steep drop where the toilets are closed and so on. So that would, if you could think of those things, that would give two other options. The, I think the one, one concern, as I understand it, David may correct me, um, that, that there's a plan for a path down by the Welcome Centre. A ramped path, I think, is it? Is that right? No, the access from Princess Street will come over the top of that building, yes. And is then, that what you're suggesting? And then how do you get from the top of the building down? I don't understand what you mean. So, so from Princess Street, how are you going to get access into the gardens? You're going to walk onto essentially so the roof of the Welcome Centre? Exactly that, that's exactly what it is. So um, the improved access will actually be, uh, I think it's about a 112 metre path. The, the challenge that we have here is it's an incredibly difficult site to access mm. safely given current regulations and that's just one of the things about yeah. the city. The, the current paths, I walked down them this oh. morning, they're about 45 degrees, I Absolutely, think. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and the thing of, and short. And it, and it, uh, they're so bad to the point that actually it's irrelevant whether you've got any form of physical disability or not. If it's wet or icy, mm -hmm. you can be in the best condition of your life and you still have it. Uh, so where so would the 100 or not metre path? Yeah, yeah, sorry, I thought it was, this has been very clear from the numerous discussions we've had over the years, but effectively the path sort of snakes its way down from Princess Street to that top promenade over what is effectively the top of the um, top level of the Welcome Centre, which is a cafeteria. Um, as I say, one of the challenges, the sort of, I think the minimum le length of path you require to get from that height on Princess Street down to the, the, the height of the, the lower, the top promenade is about 112 metres. Now that's an incredibly long path. We've looked at other options in terms of lift accessibility. There's a difficulty then with planning uh, policy that you can't extend anything above the height of uh, Princess Street on the garden side. Therefore, putting a lift shaft in becomes uh, challenging. Also, the fact that a lift might break. It needs to be mm. maintained c continuously. If you're coming into the city centre to, to spend time in the gardens and you arrive and the lift's not working, that mm. then becomes um, people might not come because of the risk. So really, uh, the decision was made very early on that there needs to be a, per a permanent safe ramped access. So if you go back to where the <coughs> Scots Grace Monument sure. is, 
it would um, it will either snake left or right of that, it, or both perhaps? It snakes effectively right or uh-huh. west to east. So uh-huh. um, the, the Welcome Centre will sit between the Scots Grace Monument uh-huh. and the American War Memorial. So effectively it faces, par- uh, faces directly looking onto the new uh, pavilion and that sort of central column. Um, and Cliff's right, it is a big uh, intervention to the gardens. But the positive thing for us is that we're hiding it, all of it underground. So actually no garden space that people use today will be lost through the, the building of so the space. So essentially if you were up on the castle promenade, uh, the castle esplanade rather, you're going to be looking down on a grass roof, uh, you'll see the pathway, you would yep. see the windows see which the, look south correct. into the gardens, but you really wouldn't see a huge building as no, such. You wouldn't see a building at okay. all. And, and why do you need this welcome centre? That's maybe one part of one of my yeah. questions. <laughs> yeah, so I'll take you back to the project started. Obviously, Norman had put up his £5 million. Originally, as I mentioned, it was just a project to replace the bandstand. But then we started getting all these comments from various users of the garden, stakeholders, saying that we needed improvements to certain areas. Access was a huge one. Um, at the moment, the, cap, the catering or the food and drink offering is a bit sporadic in the garden. There's a temporary tent by the, uh, by the fountain, which doesn't really look brilliant for uh, sort of capital city's premier green space. Um, toilet provision was almost uh, non-existent. I think a lot of the toilets are now closed, etc., um, etc. Et so we were trying to look at these challenges and we, we realised that actually we could solve almost all of them by one intervention, which actually most of which could be hidden under the grounds. Now the benefit of that is you get the central safe access point, which was for having spoken to people like Ewan's Guide and the Edinburgh Access Panel, that that is their primary need. It's one central safe, well lit, well signposted uh, space that can be accessible all year round. There's nothing that's going to prevent people getting down that ramp. It's not reliant on technology, etc. Um, and it's a, a best place to enter the gardens because there's no mature trees there. There's no memorials, um, and the benefit is it faces uh, the the new pavilion. Uh, it's a sensible, logical place to have it, um, and the benefit of putting it there is we can actually build it all into the federal valley that's there just now so causing no disruption to to anybody else that wants to use the gardens you're not losing any garden space in fact what you're actually getting is, is quite a significant in- increase in available space in the gardens which is something that's not available just now because it's indoors and one of the big issues that we have in this space is that when it starts chucking it a rain 30 seconds after it's been glorious sun you have potentially thousands of people or hundreds of people in the gardens that just get absolutely soaked because there's no nowhere for them to go and then the area in front of the Ross Bandstand, which, as I've said, is concreted over, sure. that's um, perhaps going to be grass. You're going to it take is. the picket fence away. Yeah. That's sort of in your plans. So in 10 years' time, where are we go- or let's, even in five years' time, Mr Haig, where are we going to be in the gardens? Well, could I just come back on this, this issue about the lifts? Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because David Wright says there's, there's planning policy issues, but... As we, as we all know, <laughs> uh, not, not least commenting on East Princess Street Gardens at the moment, there are situations where planning policy can be shifted, uh, can, be, can be balanced against other considerations. Mm. Uh, similarly, um, you know, I think any lift, yeah, you, you need redundancy built into the system, mm-hmm. but you can have two lifts, so if one breaks down, sure. you know, your probability of having no access is actually dramatically reduced than yeah. if you've just got one. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't really buy the idea that there is only one solution in relation to disabled access and... Um, mm-hmm. Didn't see there was one solution. Well, but, no, but the but best, what you were saying yeah. really was the best solution is the one which doesn't require a lift, I yeah. suppose, and that, yeah. that then reduces. I'm, I mean, I'm not an expert in mm-hmm. requirements for those with physical but disabilities. But you asked you and Guide who but, is. But as we've done with everything in this project, I mean, I'm an expert in very little. I just try and get the people who are experts to advise us on what we should be doing, and that's the advice mm-hmm. they've given us. So mm-hmm. um, that, was, that was the advice that we took on board. So going back to your question on, on five, ten years' time. Um, well, I, I would hope that uh, the saga would be finished, that we still have public good land, that it would still be called West Princess Street Gardens, that it wouldn't be a platform for um, global companies to increase their marketing, that it would be a, a set of improvements that are delivered by genuine philanthropy and not confused with increasing footfall or terms like that. I'd hope that we'd uh, indeed improve all the things that we, we've been talking about, the the toilets, the shelters, the red blaze, the disabled access, 
uh, and that um, you know, it would be a successful scheme. But my fear is that uh, what we will see is a, a place that becomes known essentially as a performance area, the entertainment hub for Edinburgh, I think was used at one stage as a, a, a comment, and that the 15 event days have been stretched because the council's still short of money and this is one way to bring it in. So what we get is a situation where semi-permanently almost, uh, or for large significant parts of the year, we've got screening on Princess Street, blocking off views. We've got restrictions on public access to the gardens. And that in the end, we've lost the one of the most treasured mm. aspects that's heart, that right at the heart of a World Heritage Site that uh, has been a crucial part of the Edinburgh public space and Scotland's public spaces for generations. Those are all very valid, valid points mm. and very well held by you, I know. But I think I feel somebody on the other side of this table is uh, <laughs> I can, I mean, slightly disagreeing. <coughs> with... <laughs> I must admit, I don't agree, disagree with anything you said. I agree completely with everything you said. All I can say is that from our point of view, we are trying to ensure that everything you said doesn't happen. We are fully on on that side, um, and from a lot of what the comments you're making, it doesn't necessarily come down to what it is we're trying to provide. It's about how that ends up being run, and maybe it's then a conversation of us working together to how do we provide the best solution for making sure it's it's run correctly and in the best way for the city, so that everybody gets the improvements that we are trying so desperately to provide, but they, they don't lose access to their public space and the, uh, what you say quite rightly is one of the most important public green spaces in the whole of the city. Um, as I say, from this project is absolutely not about trying to take this space from the people or privatise it or, or reduce access. We, we're a small charity that has no financial benefit from anything that happens in this space. Why on earth would we be trying to go out and raise all this money and spend all this time to make these improvements if, if the purpose of that was to close them off to put money in other people's pockets? That doesn't make any sense at all. So I fully understand your concerns and you're absolutely right to bring them up. It's essential that people are doing that. But I hope that you know, and obviously this is one conversation, but we've been having conversations for years, that from our point of view, we're trying to do exactly the same thing. We're just a small group of people that are trying to raise money to make this the best space it can possibly be. And we make mistakes, we might not always get it right, but ultimately that's behind everything that we, we try to do. And I, and I hope that we can work together to try and answer the questions that quite rightly you're bringing up and need to be answered. Well then, I think we need to remove the ambiguity whether it's the best space this can be or an outstanding marketing opportunity. <laughs> maybe you'll have your way, Mr. Haig. Maybe that will be removed from the uh, the, the brochures. Maybe not. But I do th I, I do think that this conversation. Thank you so much both for no your problem. time because I do think that this conversation alone perhaps shows on how many points you actually agree. Yes. Which of course in. At 280, is it characters on Twitter? Yeah. One can never agree or disagree fully with anyone. One has to try and get uh, the view out in, in far too few words. So thank you very much indeed for speaking with us this morning. No thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Edinburgh Reporter podcast. Listen out for more episodes coming soon.